I'm Savitra Wilson, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to my podcast, From Solid Ground to Resilient. Last week, I released my book, Resilient, How to Overcome Anything and Build a Million Dollar Business with or Without Capital to the World or wherever books are sold. You can pick it up from bookshop.com and shop local and black. You can grab it from Target, Books a Million, and Amazon, where the book went back to number one in several categories, including venture capital, entrepreneurship, and grants and nonprofits. Uh, Also, we released conversations between myself and some of the guests on my virtual book tour. Yes, y'all, I'm on a virtual book tour, and you can grab a ticket for $30 at SavitraWilson.com, which unlocks conversations with all 12 guests uh, that I have on and that I'll have on throughout the virtual tour. Um, This includes Master P., Kat Cole, Jewel Burke-Solomon, Baron Davis, Rob Hill Sr., and more. Y'all, these conversations are so personable and filled with actionable how-tos to get you moving in the right direction. And it also comes with a book. Yes, the book is included for $30. So that's all 12 conversations and a book for $30. Um, I'm thinking about the conversation I had with Kat Cole. It was so powerful. Kat is the most recent former COO and president of Focus Brands, which is the parent company to Jamba, Auntie Anne's, Cinnabon, and others. Everything that I basically should be eating in the, in the airport. Yeah, all that goodness. <laughs> she comes from a similar background as myself. And what I love most about her story is that she always recenters things that her mother has told her along the course of her journey. <clears throat> I love that because I do the same. And at one time, I wondered, man, are people tired of hearing about my mama? <laughs> I don't know. But she reassured me that it didn't matter. On this episode, I'm going to take you back to my live book tour launch event that was last Tuesday. So this week's podcast is me in conversation with the extraordinary Sheba Turk, morning anchor for WWLTV here in New Orleans and all around phenomenal woman. We did this conversation live from Studio B. So if you hear some folks in the background, then what you're hearing is a live audience. Shout out to everyone who helped me pull off this tour. I'll be giving some direct shout outs soon on my IG page as well. Nonetheless, go join my virtual book tour, which goes through May 3rd. So you can listen back to previous conversations um, that we've already released, but also you'll be a part of new conversations that are coming out um, over the next couple of weeks. So yes, you will want to join that virtual tour um, at SavitraWilson.com. And if you don't want to do that, then support your girl and buy my book wherever books are sold. So without any further delay, I want to just introduce the Resilient Virtual Book Day launch event live from Studio B with me, your girl Savitra and Sheba Turk. Excited to have with a woman who I admire and really look up to. She knows this, so I'm always excited to talk with her, and I'm always secretly taking notes when she talks because I want to be here one day. Uh, so let's give her a big round of applause, Savitri Wilson, for the launch of her second book today. This woman is amazing, as we all know. She's founded two companies. Now she's the found the writer, author of two books, which is so exciting. And so today we're going to talk about her books, but we're also going to talk about her story. And I'd love to get you guys involved in the conversation. So I'll ask her questions. We'll have a conversation for about 30 minutes, and then I'll open the floor to you guys if you have anything you want to say. Um, I'll let you know when we're ready for Q&A. All right, Samichi, so you know I love you. Read the first book. Was so excited to get the second book. Tell us what made you want to write this second book. It's called Resilient. 
how to overcome anything and build a million dollar business with or without capital. So a little bit of the backstory to resilient and why like black women supporting black women is so important. Um, my friend Amber Cabral was actually doing a DNI workshop for Amazon. Um, virtually, and this was after the uh, murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and they brought her in to do a DNI workshop. DNI, yes. So that's uh, diversity and inclusion for anyone that is not aware of DNI. And we, um, and they were having a conversation. She was having a conversation with everyone on this call, and someone that was listening in just happened to be a publisher and work at Wiley Publication, and she's listening to Amber talk, and she was like you need to write a book about the work that you're doing. And in that conversation, they ended up doing her first book deal, and the publisher and editor was like, I'm looking for more women, more women of color, who are specifically writing about business because there is a gap and absence of black women, uh, women of color writers, particularly in business. And Amber recommended me to her and Wiley. And so I interviewed Riley, we had a conversation around just my story, and interestingly enough, I was thinking about like writing a second book, but was going down a different route. And the call with Jan and I just went over so well. We kind of talked about like the outlines of what I could foresee my book being. And I really wanted to share just like my journey, and particularly my startup journey, which is a lot different than Solid Ground, which you and I talked about about a year or so ago. Mm -hmm. And kind of tell the audience the difference there, because you did have a company before Resilient and this book Resilient. I love that each company gets a book, right? Let's just keep that going, okay? Yeah. Solid Grounds has Solid Grounds the book, Resilient has Resilient the book, which I love. What is the difference in the two companies and the two books? So Solid Ground was essentially supposed to be like a no thrills, quick, down and dirty, um, story about how I started my first company, but not how really I went step by step and did it, but generally how did I go from not knowing anything about business and understanding how to network, understanding how to um, meet clients, my first clients, understanding how to put together my first proposal. And so it was a lot of like my first as it relates to just being in business. Whereas resilient is, okay, now I have at least one business under my belt, and here I am trying to enter this whole new world, which is the tech space. And I feel like pretty confident because I had did this other company, and so investors and other people who would generally um, need to support me may look to that, my previous experience, say, okay, she did this, she may be able to do something else, but Anyone, when you guys didn't have opportunity to read the book, you'll find that it did not go smooth at all. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna talk about some of those hiccups in a second. That is, I think, one of the things that makes you so relatable and I think gets people interested in your story. You didn't always know that you could work in tech. You yeah. didn't always picture yourself working in a business realm. You, you're very relatable. You were a black woman trying to be successful. You didn't know exactly what realm that would fit in. Where's the moment for you when you were like, I am going to be an entrepreneur? You know, they say that people ask the question, is entrepreneurship, um, is, you know, being resilient or being scrappy nature or nurture? For me, I think it's a little bit of both, but I do feel like it's my, it was in my nature to be an entrepreneur. And, you know, I can take you all the way back to LSU when I started. Look at me. <laughs> they say, I know about, I know about you now. Yeah. When I started, 
Black News Are Away, which is supposed to be like this online newspaper to bring together students from Southern University, students from LSU, to, to really stop the gap that existed between us, to write about common themes that existed between both of us, irregardless of the schools we went to. And so that was actually my first entrepreneur uh, journey, or like my first time dipping my toe into that scene. And I basically recruited all of my friends <laughs> as writers. Some of them are in this room. Oh. And you know, I got one, another one of my friends who's on campus to do our photos in like the west side of campus. It was crazy. I don't know who we thought we were, but we were trying to build back then this company at like 18, 19. And you know what was cool? I just read in the book last night that you said at first you didn't identify that until recently as the first time that you felt like you were being an entrepreneur or company. It took looking back at your journey to be like, oh wait, I was starting something then, which I think is interesting. Yeah, and I think that maybe when a lot of us look back to our college careers, we're like, man, that kind of was entrepreneurial, things that I put together, or things that I started. Um, you know, I see Jared back there, he was slinging shirts back in college. <laughs> <laughs> the whole audience was for her at some point, maybe? <laughs> so I think, you know, if we look deep down, we probably all have that entrepreneurial spirit and we get something. We were definitely selling candy, right? For one dollar growing up. Yes. So it's in us all for sure. I love that. And I think that's what makes you so relatable, especially in a time and space and place when entrepreneurship seems to be the thing. And we'll delve into, of course, the difficulties of that later. But you know, that's why I'm always like, I want to be an entrepreneur, Savitri, but I don't know what my business is going to be. For you, when you hear people say that, I have this entrepreneurial spirit, I have this idea. I understand in this book, part of your goal is to help people go from an idea to a business. What are the keys there when you have an idea, which I think everybody has ideas. The majority of us, that's it, it ends right there, right? I had a really good idea, right? You tell it to a friend and that's the end. How do you take that and actually turn it into a business? So I think the first step is to conceptualize what your idea is and then think about what it is that you need to actually begin to execute against that idea. A lot of times people get um, just stagnant in the process of trying to take their idea to a product or their idea to fruition primarily because they don't know what comes next and they don't have someone to help them to figure out what comes next and so they just stop altogether. But it's really being focused on what resources, what things do I need to be able to execute this thing to bring it to life? Because it solely won't just be on you. For me, I need other people, I need help in order to get both my businesses off the ground. And I think so many times people think that if they don't have solely on them what it takes to get their business off the ground, then maybe it shouldn't happen. Yeah. And it really does take more than just you um, as an individual to get something going and then to also grow it. Now, it's obviously up to you to actually get that idea to a point where you can take it to someone and get some other people, other uh, ideas, any individuals trying to help you get things into place and what you need to get it going. However, I think initially you just never get to that point. Yeah, there's, I think, a lot of intimidation in that process, a lot of nerves in that process. So if you have an idea, what point do you need to get to before you bring other people into it? I know we were supposed to do a pitch competition together recently, so you hear pitches from people yeah. who have business ideas. How developed should that be before you take it out to somewhere else? Honestly, it depends on your comfort level, but also I think sometimes people have this idea or this notion that people are going to steal their idea, and so sometimes that hinders them from wanting to tell people about their what they have going on. Sometimes people think that people are going to, um, in many words, like crap on their idea yeah. and say, I don't think this is for you. 
but there's never a time that's soon enough. But if you're thinking about people like mentors and you know one of my mentors and advisors, um, Rod West, who's over at Energy, when I approached him, I asked him something very simple and I was like, I need a guy in New Orleans because I was fresh here, I was trying to connect to people. Um, and he received that, but every time I went to speak with him, I had very direct questions, very direct um, things asked that I needed. And so sometimes people can talk to people about things, but they don't have anything tangible enough to give to that person where that they can actually help them. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that's like a big thing. Like how can you take something, an idea, and even if you're just speaking to people about it, you, you have, you're having a conversation, maybe you're just talking to friends about it, but you also need to talk to people who aren't necessarily the closest to you, because people, you need people who are going to be honest with you and they're going to tell you the truth about what you're doing, and they're also going to know enough about it um, to kind of help you think through what needs to happen next. And is there such thing as a good idea and a bad idea, or is it just in the execution? Well. I'm sure there's a lot of ideas that people thought were bad ideas that people executed, and they were like, oh, I guess that wasn't so bad, like 140 character tweet, right? And so there are a lot of things that people probably thought weren't good uh, good ideas, and so I do think that it's more of the process of execution um, than anything. Sure, and we always talk about this, making a business and making money is two different things. You mentioned being a black woman, which I want to talk about more and being in the business realm, but we talk about black women being the fastest creators of business, the biggest growing group of entrepreneurs, but also not bringing in the money. So this is where you stand out, because I don't know where, you, you met most of these people working for you in college. I found out about you because on the internet, right, you made headlines for being a black woman from New Orleans who got a million dollars in venture capital. And I was like, I don't know what venture capital is, but I like this girl, right? Like, let me keep reading these articles and let me see more about her story. Why was that the thing that captivated people? Because I know you write in the book, you felt like you had bigger wins. Why was that what drew you literally national attention? So I do feel that um, social media has changed the landscape of entrepreneurship and headlines definitely catch um, people's attention. And it was, I guess like three years ago now, and it was doing Essence and a good friend of mine, Summer, had wrote an article about me raising capital for her blog, very small blog called The Distillery, and just so happened because she released it during Essence, other major um, publications picked it up. Mm. And when they picked it up, it sent my story viral because I had raised capital, because I was a black female, because I was in New Orleans. And people were like, how did you raise that money down in New Orleans? Like, that in itself was a story to people because so many times they tell you you have to go out to San Francisco or Bay or wherever mm-hmm. else, um, and that there's no capital here, which is a lot more now, but it's definitely not a lot here. And I think that people um, are inspired by that and because it's something that they don't necessarily see often. Um, and so I think that's why like the raising capital got the most attention. Um, but you know, I was like, hey, nobody really cared about me building this, you know, seven-figure company solid ground. Um, and I had done that for you know almost 10 years before people really like knew who I was outside of that. Wow. And then I know you posted about this before about not being able to be profit in your own land, talking about how people love the unfamiliar. You wrote about that in the book, so I know it's something that must to some extent have characterized a part of your journey. That must be disappointing to be this successful and feel like the success has to come from the outside, not from people in New Orleans. 
Yeah, I think that sometimes people notice you on the outside, and it takes people noticing you on the outside for people to notice you where you are. And I think a lot of um, entrepreneurs are people in business actually, or even their careers, they experience that. And there's a lot of different reasons, but I was actually quoting um, a biblical verse when I talked about that in my book, that oftentimes people feel like they're not supported where they are and they have to go elsewhere to get support. And once they do, then people where they are support them. Right. Um, and I talk about that in the context of business because with SGI, I actually, was my largest contracts didn't come from Louisiana. But I was building a business in Louisiana Louisiana was benefiting <laughs> from me having a business and employing yeah. people here and doing work, but my largest contracts were coming from Connecticut, Atlanta, everywhere else. And so I talked about the concept of that. Um, you know, now I don't have any issues, but <laughs> I had to go out and get it and got to bring it back. <laughs> what do you think was key in you being able to go out and get it and bring it back? Because it can't be that easy. Everybody's not doing it. No, it's not. But I started meeting people along the way, and I think sometimes um, I never take for granted networks and like the power of like meeting people and um, not seeing. I don't. I hate when people use the word building, right? Because people use that word, let's build together, and you're like, oh, what does that mean to you exactly? Um, but I started meeting people along my journey, and they were in other cities, and they're like, oh man. Could, could you help me with this, or can you help me with that, or I have this project I want to bring you in on, or can you partner on a project and go have a contract together, uh, which is the case of my friend, like um, Zamara in DC, and those relationships started, you know, building and compounding, um, and it allowed me to grow like, my footprint in Louisiana. Um, but you know, there were certain things in Louisiana that I did that like opened up the landscape to me. You know, one uh, mayor, Sharon Weston Brooks, she texted me probably a couple of minutes ago, um, congratulating me on my book tour. But one of the pivotal points I think in my career was also being on her raise in her campaign and like really learning that like greed in but building from the ground up grassroots. Um, type of building and taking that and being able to continue to compound the work that I was doing outside of um, communications and public policy. So everything that I have generally learned has built upon like the next thing in my journey. And you have stuck with Louisiana, despite you saying you kind of had to go away to get the support because as the pandemic was starting, I think right before then we talked, you were just setting up your office in New York. But you were also saying like, I'm staying in New Orleans. Kind of talk about the importance of that for you. If this is not the place that's supporting you, nobody would be mad if you were like, okay, it's not working here. And so the other, the flip side of that is also in Louisiana, we're just limited with resources, right? And so going to New York, over the second office in New York was my way of being able to take resources and bring it back home. Because one thing that I also realized is that, man, people don't have enough to support me the way I need to be supported. And so for me to change that dynamic and to ensure that we actually leave New Orleans and the places that we are better than which we found them is that we have to go out and get those resources and bring it back to people who were trying to come up and build things too. And so that's one of the reasons why I decided to, um, you know, stay in New Orleans, continue to build New Orleans, and you know, I love New Orleans, so it is what it is. It's a beautiful thing, and we appreciate having you. <laughs> what would you say though to up and coming entrepreneurs who are struggling here? Yeah. Do you tell them stay here, or do you secretly whisper, "Go do what you need to do," and then come back? <laughs> So there was this guy, he tweeted me 
Uh, he actually, I think he did move back to New Orleans. And so he was tweeting me, people from Gnaw, GOV. He was like, why should I come back to Louisiana? Because, you know, this is why I left, because I didn't, couldn't get the support. But why should I come back? Because now people are starting to maneuver around and people who have went off to like New York and LA are starting to return home. And so he was like, I want to return home. Like people want to come back home. And he was like, but can I come back home and still have a thriving business? Or do I risk basically my business collapsing if I leave LA, because that's where he was in LA to come back home. And I was like, and so they started playing with people and they tagged me and they tagged some other people who were doing well here. And I was like, yeah, I think you can. I think you can do well here. You have to like, identify resources really quickly. And you also have to be a part of an ecosystem that grows the culture and builds opportunities here for other entrepreneurs like yourself so that they can come home. Yeah. And so I think that that is the dynamic that we also have in New Orleans. Um, and a friend of mine, she ended up leaving her hometown and I was like, yeah, you know, open office in New York, in New Orleans. And she's like, yes, I had to leave my hometown because if I stayed here, I would die here. Wow. Not meaning her physically, but her mm -hmm. business would have died there. And so when you think about small towns or smaller cities that don't have the resources of other cities, um, that can oftentimes be like the perception that if I stay here, my business will die here. But, you know, that can't be true because Cleveland's sitting back there and he has a thriving business. <laughs> Definitely. And we need you guys to show that the way is different. So I want to return back to the book title, Why You, Ch Why you Chose Resilient. I know you've been through a lot of things, personal and professional. Let's start with the professional. Why is resilient the word that defines you feel like your journey? So my company's name is also Resilia, which derives from resilient. So the book was kind of my friends will tell you I was doing all these different things for a book, very similar to how I was doing all these things when I was trying to uh, name my company. And both times I just came back to resilient. And I think about like the word itself and like what it means to me, but it is this ability to like overcome um, all of these challenges, all these odds, and still make it out on top, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I came up with the name of the book, Resilient, it was like, yeah, this is it. And now I know the word resilient is like, everybody's using the word because of COVID-19 and everything yeah. from 2020. Uh, so it, it's very timely, I will say. Um, but then also it was like, oh, and how to overcome anything. I was like, yeah, there's like overcome anything, so you really anything. <laughs> And for me, it was like, yeah, because even in failure, you have to overcome it. And I think that is a mindset of that you can't overcome anything. It doesn't mean that you're gonna be successfully, you know, successful in doing so, but it means that you can't overcome even failure. And when you think back on your journey in a business sense, what was the moment that you were like, this is a fail? Maybe you even thought about quitting. What is that story? Yeah, so I was talking to uh, Kat Cole, and interviewing her, and she was like the COO of Focus Brands, which is like, you know, Cinnabon, um, Jamba, all of those big names. And she came from like a rural area in the South. Um, she was raised by a single mother, like the whole nine as well. And we just kind of talked about um, just like the journey that we had gone on into, into really like getting our footing and getting where we are and like the uh, failures that we had faced during that process. And one in particular was like when I went out to raise like my seed round, um, which my seed round was like $2 million, which was the hardest round, much harder than raising $8 million, which sounds crazy, but that $2 million seed round was the hardest round. Because seed is the beginning. 
Yeah. I'm using context clues here. Okay. Yeah. So pre-seed, I raised $400,000 in my pre-seed round. And that was different because, because I had built my first company. I had, I knew individuals, I had networked, I had met people along the way who could write me like $10,000, $25,000 checks. And so I was able to raise my pre-seed round fairly easy. But then when I moved to my seed round, because I couldn't access that capital here in Louisiana, I had to go outside of Louisiana, and that proved to be very difficult. But I'll tell you how I circled back to Louisiana, although the majority of my capital was raised outside in my seed round, is that I was pitching at New Orleans Entrepreneur League, Coulterbitch. Um, a couple of people were there, and you will know I did not win, <laughs> but I thought I did well. Um, and it was hosted by Jim Coulter, who is the CEO and president of PPG Capital, which is a private equity firm. They have like billions of dollars under management. And when um, and doing that process, they actually have like actual partners at PPG sitting on the calls with you and helping you pitch. One of the individuals that was on my call was actually Tim Milligan, who was a partner at TPG Capital. Now, obviously, this is not his lead, right? He's in Series B, C, D, doing billion-dollar deals, but he's, he's taking an interest in um, early-stage companies from that level and, like, coaching them. And so I lost that Monday. I sent the email to everyone saying, thank you. I did not win. Sorry to let the team down. Um, but I appreciate you helping me. And he responded and said, when you're ever in San Francisco, look me up, would love to um, you know, catch up, see where you are. I think you have a strong, a solid business. Um, and a couple months passed by, I'm going to San Francisco. At this point, I'm like, I'm never gonna get this round raised. Like, this is it, this is the final. This is, you know, the company's not gonna go past this. Happened, I got up with him, he responded immediately, got together for lunch, and he actually gave me the check. He wrote the check in my round that allowed me to raise the rest of the capital that I needed. And so in investing in venture capital, one thing that people will tell you is that investors signal. And basically, that means that the investor who is real respected investing in your company, then it's a lot easier to get other investors to invest in your company. And because Tim was so well respected and he invested in my company, other investors wrote a check a lot faster than they would have, or maybe they wouldn't have wrote a check at all. And so Tim was really kind of the um, individual, and he didn't even write a big check, I raised $2 million, and his check wasn't even that um, large, but his name was. And that allowed me to check, turn my entire round um, around and raise the rest of the capital that I needed. Awesome. Let's talk about resilient in a personal sense, because I know in the book you talk about being a first-generation college student, a household you grew up in, wanting to make life better for your mother, and of course your mother passed, which I'm so sorry. And you know we've had this personal conversation before, I'll be real with the audience, um, that my dad passed about two years ago and a similar feeling. Like we were working really hard to give our parents better lives, and then when they're gone, you're like, why am I doing this? Like, what is the new purpose? You had to reframe your purpose, which I find I think especially for black people, when you talk about being successful, there's always somebody you're doing it for, right? Like, it's just a common narrative. So talk about that point, reframing things and what you're working to be successful for now. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanna double down on that part that you just said. Like being a black entrepreneur, just being black in general, there's always someone else you're doing it for. And I think that just that theme is so consistent across the board. Um, and I think for me, it was definitely, my mother lit a extended fire under me to say, okay, 
letting me refocus and reshape what I am doing this for and try to define what I want like my legacy to be. And in many ways that began to shape as, okay, how can I help other people? And whether that's help other people be passionate and do the jobs that they um, have jobs that they like, great, and are passionate about um, helping my community. You know, we have been working with nonprofits, we still do work with foundations. And so the majority of my career has been spent in the community and working in the community to build um, really the space and places that I feel we deserve and the world that I feel we deserve to live in. And I think that everyone appreciates that you have this sense of giving back, of owing something to others. Is there a story that stands out of you helping someone who like, like that was my younger self and now I can help them get over this? Yeah, man, I have so many people. I'm like, <laughs> you probably have a <laughs> I have a lot of mentees. Um, and I think about my mentees often. Um, I was giving an interview and I was just talking about um, like one of my mentees, like EJ, who was in this program, Catch, uh, Caring, Anthony, Teaching Children Hope. And to this day, we're still connected. And he's like, Nancy, you really like, just helped me so much in that. But I also look at like, the power of other people who have created platforms to allow me to help people. And in that instance, that was um, my good friend, Tyrus Thomas. And Tyrus doesn't get half the credit that he deserves of what he has done in the community to help other people, as well as give the platform to so many other people so that they too can help others. Beautiful. So shout out to Tyrus. There you go. All right, guys, I'm gonna open the floor to questions for you as we continue the conversation. So if everybody has something specific they wanna address or a question about the new book, you guys can jump in at any point, all right? But we'll continue the conversation, so just raise your hand and I'll, I'll watch on. Jerry, we got one? Oh, great. So, one of the things that I've been impressed with you about over the years and how you've evolved. So, starting from SGI to Resilia, I'm curious to hear a little bit more color about, you know, what pushed you to evolve in the way that you have. Like, what did you run up against, or what did you see that wasn't working, that was a good idea, or maybe a bad idea, that wasn't the best idea, and how you got to where you're at now? Yeah, I definitely think that my journey has tremendously evolved. Um, I'm not even a technical founder of tech, so it's like, how in the world did you get in tech? Most people would ask that or even wonder that. And I think about like where I started um, with SGI, and Jared and I actually used to laugh about this because we used to work with athletes, and working with athletes, we're like, it can be very challenging. And at some point, I was like, you know what? I don't think I want to work with athletes anymore, and I don't think I want to do events anymore. Like I'm not passionate about the like doing that side of the um, work that we we're doing. And I always say like people who do events and logistics are like amazing people, and I realized that I didn't really like doing that. And I think a lot of my evolution boiled down to really figuring out what I love to do and what I did not like doing and also things that I wanted to learn to do, right? Like be disruptive in tech. And I think back to when I first started my first company, some of the things that we were doing, um, in many ways trying to figure it out, because when you're starting a business, you are trying to figure out like the things that you're really good at and the things that you're not so good at. And when you're a agency, and we were an agency, we offered a lot of different services. And it really was me taking a step back and really taking a chance 
by resigning contracts. Like I resigned tons of contracts because I just didn't enjoy doing it. And it became bigger than just money because some people might have kept the contracts because, hey, you're, you're cutting off a part of your revenue arm. But for me, I had to do that to be able to evolve. When I was working in SGI and I took a pivot to Resilia, I remember talking to my uh, technical consultant, good friend Ishmael, and he said to me, if you're gonna do this for real, you gotta step away from SGI. And I was like, what do you mean? This is how I make money. Like, yeah, this is how I make money. So I eat. He was like, yeah, but if you really, really are going to give this company a fair shot, you're gonna have to focus on it. And you're gonna have to like put um, all your focus and attention on it to really grow it and get to a place where it needs to be. And so I put a, um, a stake in the ground and said, well, that's what I'm going to do. And again, I started resigning contracts with um, SGI to be able to do that and focus on Brazilian. But a lot of the things that I have done have been very intentional and me not being able to like see all the way down the road, but taking a chance and saying, this is what I truly want to do. And this is what I see like my future looking like. Um, and for me to be able to do that, you know, something Oprah says, when you're trying to figure out what to do next, just become really still and think about what's the next best step and then make the next best step after that and the next best step after that. And so I think a lot of times when I'm trying to figure things out, I go back to, Latch, you like doing this? Like, I enjoy this? Um, and try to make, make decisions based on things um, that I really want to do and things that I feel motivated and really like empowered to keep moving forward on. It seems like you enjoy it, do you? Yes, I love okay. what I do. <laughs> I always like to make sure, because yeah, and when I don't, then I'll move on to something else, right? And so I think that that is definitely my mentality. Beautiful. Any other questions, guys? Yeah. Hi, this is actually a personal question. I'm extremely proud of you, congratulations. How do you care for so many black women are sort of, they have this weight of being everything to everyone all the time. And you going, you know, multiple states, multiple coasts. How do you care for yourself and not burn out? Um, so, I do think like self-care is important. And I also am a big believer of therapy. So anytime I feel, anytime I talk to my friends and I'm there, I'm like, I don't you have a therapist. Can we find one for you? I promise you it'll change your life. Yeah. And so I'm really big on therapy and I was introduced to therapy via my line sister Renisha, who sought a therapist after her mother passed. And my mother passed years before hers did. And so I was late to the game. But she like, she randomly texted me out of nowhere and said, I think you should um do you have a therapist? But I was like, no. She's like, I think you should look into it. And she's like, I'm gonna send you a couple people in your area. <laughs> And I don't know, it was like on her heart or her spirit to tell me that. And so I found a therapist and definitely believe in therapy just from a state of, you don't have to always be um, hurting or down or whatever. I think most people think that you go to therapy because something's wrong. Yeah, and that's think, why they straight away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think so. We my therapist, we'd be like literally joked out on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> because all they don't have to be bad names, yeah. right? It could be like, listen to me. 
I'm gonna tell you what I'm thinking, what do you think about that? Yeah. And he'll be like, mm, that don't sound, let me flip back to these pages, that don't sound like you're why to me, yeah. right? And so like a reminder of like why you're doing things that you're doing as well. And so I'm a huge believer in therapy. Um, you know, I'm definitely a spa girl, so that's just my thing. Um, and because I was like in like a bad wreck like years ago. And so I definitely tell people if you feel pain, get it checked out, go to a chiropractor. We have a resident doctor here, CBD, Heather. Um, but get checked out, right? Because your health is so important to you and you only get like one body. Yeah. And that's something that I became very mindful of. Like you only get, you know, one brain, one mind, one body, and so try to take care of it. But then on the other side of that, I also am very cognizant of the privilege that self-care in that way is because there's not a spa day that's going to recover anyone who can't keep their lights on, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people are like, oh, self-care, self-care. It's like if money and your finances and not being able to pay bills or, you know, feed your children is the issue, then there's no self-care in the world that's going to solve for that. And you have to think about like, how do I fix that problem? Like, what are the challenges around? And some of that is like us, right? Society, government, and other things. But if you're in a position like your company is failing, you're trying to figure out how to keep your, um, pay your next payroll, like those are other challenges that need to be talked through through a different lens. Um, and sometimes, you know, I feel like we can like blanket self-care a lot of times when people aren't feeling good. Probably not feeling, I don't feel good if I can't pay people. <laughs> I, that's a whole other reason why I'm not feeling good. And those my name up here that. That I think is a great point. I always ask the self-care question too, so like a really yeah. successful woman, because I'm like, how are you doing it? I'm dying on the inside, right? And, and I think you make a great point that so often we're so run down trying to make it to the next thing. So I think a good question would also be, what do you do on those days when like there is no time for a spa day? You're like, I feel horrible, but tomorrow I have to be at this meeting. Is there something or something you tell yourself, something you do that gets you like through one more day? Just like, let me get to Friday, let me get to Sunday. Um, so I also like meditation. I use this headset um, that my friend Jason introduced me to called the Muse headset. And it's like 120 bucks or so, or you can like buy them cheaper than on Amazon. And it allows you, a lot of people don't like meditation because they don't know how to do it. Yeah. And I didn't either, because you know, people are like, oh, meditate. I sit there, I'm like. I've been thinking about food. <laughs> yeah, I always think about food. Always. Like, always. Like, I'm you trying. too. Yeah. I'm trying to like, you know, it works. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm thinking about what's next. Like, like how is it? Am I missing a meeting? Yeah, no, I failed a million times. Yeah. So I think about those things um, when it comes to meditation. But what the Muse headset does, is that it re-centers you and it calms you. And so when you put it on, for example, you have, um, if you lose focus, if I lose focus and I didn't have this on, well now I can do it without it, but if I lost focus and I didn't have like this Muse headset on, I would just do something else because I lost focus. If you lose focus when you have the headset on, you'll hear birds chirping, or you'll hear sound, like the wave of the ocean, like it um, louder. And so, or you might hear a train, right? And so whatever it is, it's telling you to recenter yourself. And when you do, the noise disappears. And so it's kind of cool in that way because it's like monitoring your, your head, your I'm brain waves. definitely gonna try it because I've tried so many times. <laughs> Thank you.
Thanks for listening to From Solid Ground to Resilient with me, your host, Savitra Wilson. If you like this show, subscribe, listen, and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This helps us reach more people like yourselves, risk takers, entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs, and the likes. Also, be sure to visit SavitraWilson.com and sign up for my newsletter. There you can download everything from my actual pricing sheets to pitch decks, capability statements, and more. All to help you get your entrepreneur wheels turning and your business growing. To learn more about my show and listen to all my podcast episodes, go to abfc.co backslash shows. Until next time, remember, even if no one sees it for you, you have to see it for yourself. Let your work be a testament to your grit, gratitude, passion, persistence, and most importantly, resiliency. Resiliency.